All right, we're going to look at <clears throat> chapter 2 in detail this evening, at least begin to look at it. <clears throat> you have the outline that we examined uh, by way of description <clears throat> at the end of the last session. Uh, you have a copy of that again this evening, and it will <clears throat> be the same outline for each part of this second chapter that we deal with. So let's begin with a brief review <clears throat> about the form of this chapter. By form, I mean, does it have any particular style? It is poetry. We've indicated that all of Lamentations is Hebrew poetry. <clears throat> so what is the particular form or style of this poetry? Do you remember? It is an acrostic, and you can see the letters of the Hebrew alphabet from beginning to end <clears throat> to the left of each of the verses, which are also lettered A, B, C. So there's little funny <clears throat> uh, symbols that are on the extreme left-hand side of the page, down the page. That's the Hebrew alphabet in sequence <clears throat> from what we might call A to Z, but in this case, it's Aleph to Tav. <clears throat> there is one uh, slight exception here in verses 16 and 17, as we pointed out last week. The usual alphabetical order is the reverse of those letters <clears throat> that are on the left-hand side of 16 and 17. Usually that little flattened Y, what looks like a flattened Y, is called an ion. It is usually in the position where verse 16 is, <clears throat> and that little backward C with a curly Q at the top uh, is usually in the position of verse 17. So <clears throat> they are reversed here uh, in, from their normal alphabetical order, and we will try to answer the question as to why that is the case, uh, why Jeremiah actually reversed the order of these two letters in the acrostic sequence here in chapter 2. In chapter 1, they are in their proper alphabetical order. But in chapter 2 and then again in chapter 4, they will be out of their alphabetical order. And it is interesting to uh, ponder the question as to why that variation is present. Now, the second thing about the form, not only is this an acrostic, it's a poetic acrostic, that is, every verse begins with a word that begins with that initial letter that you see on the left-hand side, but it's also something else. It also has another kind of form, and what might that be? It is a chiasm. It is a macrochiasm. We say macrochiasm because the whole chapter has this chiastic style. <clears throat> it's not just a mini chiasm of portions inside the chapter. So we have a large chiasm. <clears throat> that is the A, B, C, D that letters that go down to a, uh, C prime, B prime, A prime at the end. And <clears throat> a chiasm is what kind of a device? It's a reflective device, okay? Another word? Mirror, mirror device. Very good. So what we're looking at as the poet moves through the order of his poetic lines, he's actually using a mirror device so that A mirrors A prime and A prime reflects A, and B mirrors B prime and B prime reflects B, and so on. So you come to the center, which is the crisscross at K and K prime. So... <clears throat> This is a very uh, artistically composed and carefully structured acrostic in chiastic style, which mirrors 
these receptive, respective lines as we move to the center of the chiasm and then move away from the center of the chiasm. Now, in this second chapter, he's add one more feature, a feature that he doesn't add anywhere else in the poem. This is unique to the second chapter. This is not only an acrostic in the original Hebrew language. It's not only a chiasm in the original Hebrew vocabulary. But it's also concatenated. And what does that mean, Mary Jo? Uh, hooked. It is hooked together. Yes, it is hooked together. <clears throat> and where are the hooks between verse 1 and 2, Mary Jo? Okay, there's an extra one at the back. If you run and get one, I won't wait for you to answer the question or somebody else can answer it. What's the hook in one to two? Lord. Lord. Very good. What's the hook in two and three? Jacob. Jacob. All right, you see what's happening. He has left a word in one verse that he will repeat in the next verse. And then a word in that verse which he repeats in the following verse. You see the concatenation. He's hooking the verses together in a seamless narrative or poetic narrative integrity. <clears throat> in other words, he's making this poem, second chapter, <clears throat> chiastic, uh, acrostic, he's making this poem hold together more tightly than he does any other of the four poems, the four chapters in the five-chapter work. Why? All right, that's another question we want to address. Why does he use this very carefully contrived, artistic, I don't mean invented, but inspired artistic design that is so magnificently interconnected. Why does he do it? Why does the Holy Spirit inspire him to do it this way? All right, we want to think about that question as we work our way through the second chapter. All right, now that orients you to the outline, and... Uh, it will be helpful for you to have the outline before you as we go through the chapter in subsequent weeks. <clears throat> At any rate, you understand the basic pattern unless you have some questions before we go on. All right, now let's dig into chapter 2 then. <clears throat> I'm actually going to read the verse from the New American Standard so that <clears throat> some of the vocabulary will be in front of you that I'll be discussing. Since my exegesis is based upon the New American Standard version some of you have heard me make this speech before. I still believe the New American Standard to be the most accurate translation of the original Hebrew and Greek text. That doesn't mean that any other version you're using is useless or worthless, uh, <clears throat> but it is the version that when I read the Hebrew and the Greek, the translation that is given in the New American Standard most closely matches that Hebrew and Greek vocabulary. So that's the reason I use it. All right, now... I'm reading the NASB, New American Standard, but you can follow along in your version. And 2.1 reads, How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. He has cast from heaven to earth the glory of Israel and has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Now, that initial word, how, should ring a bell with you. Does it? Yes. It begins the first verse of chapter 1. And it is the Aleph word in Hebrew, the how in chapter 1, and the how in chapter 2 is the Aleph word in Hebrew. It is the word ekah. Does anybody remember what ekah means? It means alas. 
And it is also, it also functions in another way. A car functions as the, in the Hebrew Bible. You won't look in the Hebrew Bible for lamentations. How would you look it up in your Hebrew Bible? If you had one. You would look it up under Ekah, because that's the title of the book in Hebrew. Okay, from the first word in the book, the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh as it's called, the Tanakh takes that word and makes it the title of the book in the Hebrew language. All right, so Ekah begins verse 1 of chapter 1. He repeats verse 1 of chapter 2 with the exact same word. He will also use it one more time to begin a chapter. Turn to chapter 4. And what do you see? You see it again in 4.1. It is the Hebrew word ekah. All right, now, in addition to beginning chapter 1, 2, and 4 in exactly the same way, in this chapter, there is something else in this verse. There is a word in this verse which, be, which appears in the beginning verse of the chapter. And when you look at poetry... You want to look at what begins a chapter and what ends a chapter. So what do you see, Nancy? In the day of his anger and the day of Yahweh's anger. There you see the word anger that occurs in the first verse of chapter 2 and in the last verse of chapter 2. And what does that mean when we have a word that appears in the first or the beginning and the ending of a biblical passage. Emphasis. Emphasis. It is emphasis. It is true, but it's also a mirror, isn't it? Okay. It's a reflection, but it's even more than that. David? It's an inclusio. It is an inclusio. An inclusio. The inclusio is a framing device. Beginning and end are similar. In fact, in this case, very same words. You can see the inclusio most uh, obviously in Psalm 146, 47, 48, 49, and 50. The last five psalms of the New Test- Old Testament begin and end with the very same word. It's an inclusio. You know what the word is? Hallelujah. Begins and end with hallelujah. It's an inclusio. Okay. So the point of the inclusio is to include everything in between within this bracket, to enfold the content of what is between the beginning and end in the drama that is unfolding. In other words, it's a dramatic device. It can be used in prose. It can be used in poetry. It can be used in a combination of both. So when you you find it in a biblical text, and here we see it in Lamentations 2, he is folding this chapter down into God's anger. He is bracketing the anger of God by including within it all the specifications of God's anger. He delimits the chapter by saying, okay, I'm going to begin and end this chapter with the same word, the anger of the Lord, and I'm going to fold into that drama 
between those limits, within those boundaries, I'm going to tell you a lot about the anger and wrath of God, particularly as it reflects upon the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Okay, so we not only have a duplication of beginning, which means that he's re-emphasizing what he began to emphasize in chapter 1. Alas, okay, alas what's happened to Jerusalem. In this case, alas what's happened to Jerusalem and Judah as a result of the wrath of God. Follow me? Understand the use of the devices. The devices aren't incidental. They're not Denison's theories. It's in the text. It's there. God put it there for you to understand it. I want you to think about it. Now, granted, you don't read the Hebrew, so you wouldn't see it. It wouldn't bop out at you. But sometimes even in your English version, you can pick it up. Because if your English word has been translated anger in verse 1 in the version you're using, if you look at verse 22, you might want to see if it's been translated anger in verse 22 as well. Sometimes you can pick out inclusios and some other uh, patterns, even in your English translation, if it's faithfully done. All right, these are rhetorical echoes. Rhetorical echoes. Eka, 2-1, echoes, Eka, 1-1. Anger, 2-1, echoes, anger, 2-22. These are rhetorical echoes and This language that we find here in this first verse of chapter 2 and throughout the second chapter as a whole, this language echoes the language of the book of Jeremiah. There are three chapters of the book of Jeremiah which have vocabulary which is used in this chapter 2 of Lamentations. Chapter 4, chapter 8, and chapter 10 of the book of Jeremiah are full of the language of Lamentations 2 and vice versa. That means that we're drawing together the two worlds of Jeremiah's prophecy and the world of Lamentations' fulfillment of that prophecy. This is like Jeremiah gives me the prophetic text, the book of Jeremiah provides that foretelling and prediction And Lamentations provides me the fulfillment of that text. So, in many ways, what we have is a portion of the Word of God, namely the five chapters of Lamentations, interpreting the prophecy of the Word of God, namely the prophecy of the book of Jeremiah. Now, not every detail of the prophecy of Jeremiah, because he looks beyond in his prophecy, as you know from the New Covenant promise in Jeremiah 31 to 33. He looks beyond this fall of Jerusalem in 586 and what Lamentations is describing looking back. He looks beyond to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the new covenant in Christ's blood. All right, now, the narrative poetic pen is the same, in my opinion, in both cases. In other words, I make my case for the Jeremianic authorship of Lamentations, which virtually no one believes in today. Not conservatives, not liberals, not evangelicals, not radicals. Virtually no one believes that Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. I look at this vocabulary, I look at this style, and I say, where else could it have come from except from the same pen? The man that wrote Jeremiah and used the vocabulary in chapters 4, 8, and 10 of Jeremiah that also occurs in Lamentations 2 is the same guy that wrote the poetry in Lamentations 2. 
QED, in my opinion. But of course, I don't have any PhDs alongside my name, so that means that I'm not as smart as the people that don't believe in Jeremiah's authorship. All right, now, the ironies of the fateful reversal of Judah and Jerusalem abound here. This chapter is full of them. The ironic reversals. A cloud, notice the verse, a cloud hovers over the daughter of Zion. She is covered. She is wrapped in a covering of darkness. It is the darkness of the day of the Lord's fierce anger, as the verse indicates. A dark cloud enveloping the city, not a cloud of light. A cloud of shame enveloping the city, not a cloud of glory. The glory cloud of light and radiance which filled Solomon's temple is turned to a black cloud of darkness and smoke. The glory is departed, reversed by the smoky cloud of wrath and shame. Notice here, if you will, the cancellation of the vertical vector. The vertical vector. The heaven to earth vector. Notice the cancellation. God himself has cast down the earth to heaven avenue. He has shut down the way of approach to his heavenly temple as he has cast down the earthly temple of Solomon in Jerusalem. God has canceled. His footstool presence. There is no approach to his glory, to the Shekinah cloud of his radiance. There is no approach to his throne. Can you feel the dread of this? Do you have any sense of the reality of what this means? There is no vertical access to God. He has cut it off. He has shut it down. He has canceled it. There is only horizontal flatness. Horizontal dead end. And what's the end on the horizon for every one of us? Death. As it was for every one of them. The Lord has clothed himself with smoke and fire and darkness in his wrath. And in his wrath, he has become a consuming flame. Now, the imagery of God's fury and wrath here disturbs the liberals. It upsets the postmodern world. It upsets the post-Christian world. Every effort is made to dismiss this anger of God as barbaric. The Old Testament God is vicious. He's in fact ungodly. He's unchristian. Just ask us. We postmoderns and liberals will tell you he's unchristian. Because we know. Such a God as Lamentations and Jeremiah's prophecy describes is not welcome in the post-Christian world, he is definitely not welcome in the post-modern world. For this present 
pagan age. Yes, you are living in a pagan age. For this present pagan age has invented gods of its own liking, gods of its own re-imaging, gods that look like movie stars and sports personalities, the movers, the leaders, and shakers of this age. Just turn on your computer and you beam, the minute your screen opens up with whatever website you're using, there you've got the movie stars or the stars of the day, the paparazzi. They're all there. Those are the gods of this age. Or the American idols that hope that they can be the gods of this age. Why else would you go on TV, right? They are gods filled with hubris. They are gods who are serial liars. They are gods who traffic in aborted fetuses. They are gods who have deified their sexual organs, and they'll even display them for you. They are gods who hate, who hate the one true God, and unless they repent, they too will be wrapped in the cloud of darkness which will unfold, include them in that smoke and flame on the day of the Lord's fierce anger. Keep in mind that if Lamentations 2.1 is false, and there is no God of wrath and grace, then we who profess Christ have lost nothing. We've lost nothing because there's nothing to gain. Neither wrath or glory. If God has no anger and wrath against sin and sinners, if that is all a fairy tale, a superstition, an old-fashioned barbarism, an idea of a vicious deity, if that's what it is, then you and I who believe the Christ who has saved us from the wrath to come have forfeited nothing because he's a fake too. C.S. Lewis said, don't patronize me with any of this nonsense about Jesus of Nazareth not being God. If he's not, when he claimed to be, then he's the biggest megalomaniac the world has ever seen. And you wouldn't honor him for a minute if he weren't telling the truth about who he is. If the wrath of God and his divine justice is a myth. There is no wrath to come. If it's a fraud, there is no hellish darkness. If it is false, there is no truth to a doctrine of eternal punishment. And that means that there is no truth to a doctrine of eternal blessedness. If you can't have one... You can't have the other either. There is no truth on this postmodern, modern pagan premise. There is no truth to hell or heaven, either one. Though, of course, they'll all talk about their friends dying and going to heaven, won't they? They'll even make TV programs about everybody goes to heaven, right? They'll even tell you what it's about, as if they're experts on the subject. 
without paying one bit of attention to what the Word of God says or how the Word of God says you get there. And if you don't get there, where else you go? They won't tell you the whole truth because, of course, they're serial liars. And if it's all a lie or an ignorant superstition, then, as I've underscored, we lose nothing. But what if it's the truth? What if it is the truth? If the wrath of God is real, if the day of the Lord's fierce anger is not a myth, then what is there to lose? Suppose it is true that he is a consuming fire. What is there to lose? Or what is there to gain? Are you willing to roll the dice? Are you willing to roll the dice on such a proposition? Are you willing to gamble eternity on that possibility? Or does 586 B.C. give you a preview of what's to come? Does 586 B.C. give you a preview of the day of God's final judgment when every knee, every knee will appear before the face of a God who is both perfect in just wrath and perfect in unmerited grace. Every knee will bow before that God on that day. Your knee, my knee, Satan's knee, every knee will bow. And on that day, it is either a dark cloud of his righteous anger against you and your sins, or it is a glory cloud of his merciful grace enfolding you, enclosing you, and covering your sins in the blood of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the eschatological Lamb of God. It is either that or that. There is no middle ground. If you have no substitute for the suffering of that eternal wrath, you must suffer that wrath eternally. If you have no substitute to endure that eternal wrath in your place, then you must endure that eternal wrath yourself. Jesus and Jesus alone is the eternal person. He is your eternal person who suffers in a moment on the cross your eternal wrath. In one moment, in one moment, he suffers eternity of wrath that you deserve in your place. How can he do in a moment what it would take you eternity to do? Because he's an eternal being. That is eternal God the Son on that cross. And in his substitution, what he does in bearing God's wrath against your sin is he bears it against an eternal person and an eternal person can pay an eternal penalty. But a non-eternal person, a creature, a creature will have to pay forever and ever and ever and never pay it off. Are you going to put your confidence 
in a creature, in a pope, in a sacrament, in a church ritual, in some form of worship that you participate in in your own privacy? Is that what you're going to put your confidence in? It's wood, hay, and stubble, and worse. It won't pay an eternal penalty. No pope will pay an eternal penalty for you. No indulgence that you purchase will pay an eternal No penitence, no confession that you go through, no counting of rosary beads will ever pay an eternal penalty that you owe. It'll never work. It's not enough. And even they know it, which is the reason they send you to purgatory to finish it off. What kind of a religion is that? What is the attraction of a religion like that that makes you keep paying and paying and paying and paying and never paying it off until your family has finally contributed enough to the coffers? Maybe. Remember Luther praying on the prayers of Vatican all the way up trying to get his grandfather out of purgatory? You remember that picture? He got to the top of the steps and he started to think, this is worthless. This is worthless. Surely there's a more excellent way. The just shall live by faith. No, it didn't hit him at that time so poignantly, but it was the beginning of his realization that indulgences and penances and praying on your knees up the steps of a Roman Catholic cathedral are not going to get any of your ancestors out of purgatory and are not going to get you into heaven either. For Jesus paid it all. An eternal person paid all the price of an eternal penalty. You latch on to that eternal person. You hold him fast to the bosom of your soul. You never let him go. You plead with him, Lord Jesus, don't you ever let me go. Because in a pagan world, you're going to need to hold him. Like the first century church, in a pagan world, you're going to need to hold him tight. More tightly than maybe you have ever had to do in your whole life. In a pagan world, you're going to have to hold on to an eternal person in the face of temporal punishments, oppression, and even death. He's the only one who will suffice in that day of wrath or in anything that approximates to it. Atomic Holocaust or any other nonsense. The smoke of the wrath of God is turned into a cloud of glory for those who are hidden with Christ in God the Father through the power of God the Holy Spirit. All right, verse 2. The Lord has swallowed up. He has not spared all the inhabitants of Jacob. In his wrath he has thrown down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the kingdom and its princes. 
This verse provides some detail about the fall of Jerusalem, expressed in poetic style, but nonetheless we learn some things about what happened when Jerusalem collapsed under the weight of the Babylonian invasion. Here, the poet Jeremiah uses five verbs, five verbs of the fury of God's anger. Swallowed up is the first one, a verb which will reappear in this chapter in verses 5, 8, and 16. There, in verse 16, it is interestingly found on the lips of Judah's enemies. Not on the lips of Judah or God himself or the poet, on the lips of Judah's enemies as they taunt her and revel in their triumph over her. The next verb that he uses is not spared, which suggests wrath without mercy. A verb which recurs in this chapter in verses 17 and 21. The third verse, the third verb rather, thrown down or overthrown. Judah's fortress strongholds, namely her imposing walls and fortifications, the verb appears numerous times in the vocabulary of the prophecy of Jeremiah, where it defines the commission God gave to Jeremiah in chapter 1, verse 10, that he would be an instrument of God to pluck up, break down, destroy, and overthrow the kingdom of Judah. So this verb here is particularly poignant with respect to how Jeremiah himself was commissioned to do this, to proclaim this overthrow. Now, I don't want to leave this verse without commenting on something else that occurs in Jeremiah's prophetic book. That is, the eschatological reversal. The eschatological reversal of that commission, which is found in Jeremiah 24, verse 6, and Jeremiah 31, 28, where God promises to once again build up what he has overthrown. He commissioned Jeremiah to overthrow the kingdom of Judah, but in his eschatological grace, he promises to build up what he has overthrown. That is also involved here, although it is not described here. It is implicit, though not explicit. Here in Lamentations 2, we are in the era of the obverse of the drama of that commission, the expression of God's wrath, not his restoring eschatological grace. The fourth verb in the verse is brought down, and it refers to the pulling down of the walls of Jerusalem, walls which Zephaniah, the prophet Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 16, walls that Zephaniah described as having high corner towers, on all of the corners of the walls of Jerusalem, high towers, great fortified towers at the corners of the gates. Finally, the fifth verb is the verb profaned, which means devoting the kings and princes to shame and dishonor. In other words, the princes and the kingdom have become one with a profane enemy not only in their unholy sin and iniquity, but in their own personal desecration of the sacred space represented in the temple. 
as they have profaned the name of God most holy, so they have been profaned in their ungodly unholiness. Now, the word habitations in that second verse. All the habitations of Jacob. In some of your versions, that, may, that word may be translated as pasture lands or grazing fields. So as to suggest that God's wrath falls on the rural lands of Judah, even as it falls on the urban centers of Judah. Now, I am not denying that the open countryside of Judah was affected by the marching and marauding Babylonian troops in 586 B.C. I'm not denying that at all. But I draw your attention to the reciprocal or mirror verse which parallels verse 2. You will notice our concatenated macrochiasm. Letter B and B prime on your outline. Notice what verse 21 focuses on with respect to the destruction and death in Jerusalem. Where does it say it occurred? On the ground, in the streets. In the streets. Of course, that suggests settlements or habitations of homes, dwelling places both in Jerusalem and other villages of Judah. Thus, as the focus in our symmetrical or mirror verses is the same, streets in verse 21 helps us understand habitations in verse 2. I do not think it can be translated grazing fields or pasture lands because verse 21 gives you a mirror of it. And streets is is definitely there indicating what God has done in the city. All right, verse 3. In fierce anger, he, that is God, has cut off all the strength of Israel. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy, and he has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire, consuming round about. Now, there's an envelope around this verse. You can see it in your English version. Though the Hebrew vocabulary is not synonymous, the imagery is synonymous. It is the fiery anger of God which begins this verse as the flaming fire of the Lord concludes this verse. So there's a little mini inclusio around the verse itself. Folded within the envelope, folded within the verse is the hand of divine destruction, which now, time present, raises Jerusalem and Judah. Now let us for a moment ponder that divine right hand. Let us think about that divine right hand, which formerly, time past, was raised with fiery attendant for the salvation of the seed of Jacob. What are you talking about, Denison? Did not God the Lord stretch forth his omnipotent and supernatural right hand to deliver his people whom he had redeemed from the destruction of their Egyptian enemies? What do the scriptures say? Thy right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. 
Thy right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Thou didst stretch out thy right hand in thy loving kindness and led the people whom thou hast redeemed in thy strength. Exodus 15, verses 6, 12, and 13. The right hand of God in deliverance and supernatural omnipotent power. And again, what do the scriptures say? Thou didst send forth thy burning anger, and it consumed the enemy. Exodus 15, verse 7. The pillar of fire brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. Exodus 14, 24. For the pillar of fire in the night moved between the children of Israel who were pressed up against the Red Sea, and it moved between them and the pursuing army of Pharaoh and his chariots. Exodus 14:20 with Exodus 13:21 and 22. And if you don't know DeMille's movie Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston as Moses, watch it and you will see him portray this scene where the fire of God's cloudy wrath comes between <clears throat> Ramses' army and Moses' Egyptians. Ramses wasn't the Pharaoh of the Exodus, but nonetheless, DeMille didn't get everything right. He was following the liberals who have a late date for the Exodus. At the Exodus from Egypt in 1447 B.C., the liberals think the Exodus occurred in 1200 B.C., and DeMille was following the liberals in that incident. In the Exodus from Egypt, 1447 B.C., the omnipotent right hand of the Lord saved and delivered his people while his fiery might protected and defended them. Not so 586 B.C. Not so 586 B.C. The hand of salvation, time past, is now the hand of destruction, time present. A reverse use of the right hand. A reverse exodus. The right hand of God reverses the exodus. An exodus from bondage to freedom is turned back from freedom to bondage. They're going off into Babylonian captivity. They're going off into bondage. They're not going to be free. Not in the chains that are around their ankles and their arms as they walk off all the way to Babylon. Jacob will return to the land of slavery by the power of the very hand the very right hand which brought him out of slavery. Ironies of reversal. But ironies of reversal because of the rank ugliness of sin. Sin is not pretty. It isn't. And almost every day, On your TV news programs, you are seeing its ugliness portrayed vividly before you. Is there any reasonable person who yet does not believe in the original sinfulness of the human heart? Or is it all because of some gun? And there was no evil heart behind the gun itself. What stupidity is that? To think that some object could create evil in itself. 
without an evil operative behind the object or with the object in its hand. What did Jesus say? Out of the heart of man come the evils. It doesn't come out of the barrel of a gun, per se. It comes out of the heart behind the barrel of the gun. Do any of the brilliant college graduate politicians of our day get that basic fact? Or is it too esoteric for them? After all, that's morals 101, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't immoral behavior from an immoral heart? Isn't that the reason we hold it accountable? Isn't that what Jesus is saying? Adulteries come from an immoral, adulterous heart. Fornications come from an adult and a fornicating, uh, immoral heart. Lies, deceit, murders, thefts, out of the heart. Out of the evil desire. Out of the wish to commit ugly acts. The delight to commit ugly acts. Delight. Love to do it. Now the imagery here in verse 3 of God's fiery burning wrath is also found in Jeremiah 4 verse 4 and Jeremiah 7 verse 20. The parallel rhetorical and literary symmetry suggests once again that the book of Jeremiah and the author of the book of Lamentations are one and the same pen. Now, you'll notice the word strength there in that verse, the strength of Israel. A short comment on that Hebrew word. Literally, and the New American Standard doesn't render it literally. <clears throat> oh, yes, it does. I take it back. It, it is the horn. The NIV does translate it horn here. The horns, all the horn or the horn, every horn of Israel or Jacob has, uh, has been cut off. Why horn? And translated strength. Well, think of that African Cape water buffalo. I'm sure you've seen National Geographic or other wild animal video presentations on TV, and you've seen the Cape, the the Cape water buffalo. Huge animal, huge rack of horns. Even take on lions. Now think of those massive horns cut off. Cut off those horns from that massive head of that Cape Water Buffalo with a hungry lion or a lion pride charging that hornless water buffalo. Break off, cut off the strength of that water buffalo. Cut off its horn and you leave that beast defenseless, a certain prey to its enemy predator. That's the reason for the use of the image of horn here. It's the image of strength, which once cut off, renders the, the person or the institution or the uh, portrait defenseless, even as 
the Cape water buffalo is defenseless without its horns. But there's an added intriguing suggestion which one commentator has offered. Does horn, the literal translation, refer to the Israelite monarchy, the Israelite kings? That monarchy was certainly part of the glory of Israel, as verse 1 talks about the glory of Israel. Cutting off that horn, that element of Judah's glory, cutting it off means putting an end to the Jewish monarchy. Putting an end to the Jewish monarchy by cutting off its horn, its strength. Now, in fact, 586 B.C. did exactly that. It did put an end to the Jewish monarchy. No king in the line of David or the tribe of Judah ever again sat on the throne of Zion when King Zedekiah, the last king of Jerusalem and Judah, was captured and deported to Babylon. There is now no king over the kingdom of God, no other king over the kingdom of God than the eschatological king, who is at once the eschatological David and at once king to the eschatological Judah, as he is the eschatological royal Israel of God, as he is the eschatological son of the father at his right hand. He is at the right hand. There's the right hand. It's the son of God who is the right hand, king of kings and lord of lords. You're never going to see a Jewish king sitting on a throne in Jerusalem. Never. The king of kings is at the right hand of God ruling over all the earth. Now, you don't need to wait for him to come back to Jerusalem sometime and send his scepter over all of Jerusalem and Judah in some kind of revived Zionist glory land. No. For to say that he has to reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years on the earth is to say that there's something wrong with him reigning at the right hand of God already now forever. Five eighty six BC is God's staccato. No more Jewish kings. And seventy AD, no more Jewish temples. Never again. They can fight over that dome of the rock from here to eternity. Nothing's ever going to happen to it. Except they might blow it up themselves. But it's not going to be the scene of somebody coming back to build a temple for Jesus to come to. Never. Yeah, but Denison, what if you're wrong? If I'm wrong, I don't think I am. But if I'm wrong, I'm going to repent in dust and ashes. But. You see what's at stake here. No Jewish king ever came to sit on the throne of Judah after five. That's 600 years before Jesus. No other king. That was exactly what the Jews wanted that Jesus wouldn't give them. Now, if he wouldn't give it to them 2,000 years ago, why would he give it to them in some millennium? My kingdom is not of this world. Don't you get it? You're not looking to Jerusalem here. You're looking to Jerusalem there. That's where it is. 
It's a city four square in glory. No Jerusalem on the earth could ever compare with it. And no glory of that king on his throne could ever compare either with any glory of a king here on earth. Never. I have not seen what that kingdom is like or what that king is like or what that city is like. Or what that heaven is like. Paul couldn't even describe it. He couldn't even use human words to describe it. He said, it is beyond the capability of human language to articulate. I shut my mouth for the glory of what I have seen. But I could never write it down in description. So, you think of the most beautiful portrait of heaven that you can imagine in Revelation 21 and 22. You think of that most beautiful portrait and you realize that that is simply symbol. It's way better than that. Way better than that. You can't dream of how glorious it is. How much more rich it is. How much more magnificent Christ is there in all his glory. You can't imagine it. You can only long for it. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Time for a break. We're on to verse 4. I'm not, a, I'm not apologizing for my deliberate uh, tempo here. Okay, I'm, I'm tearing things apart and going very slowly. Um, I hope that that meets with your approval. Uh, even if it doesn't, that's what I'm going to do anyway. But <laughs> Because I'm intrigued by this wonderful book, and so I'm... I am digging more deeply than I have done, uh, tended to do before. Nonetheless, uh, I, that's the method to my madness. Verse 4. He, the Lord, has bent his bow like an enemy. He has set his right hand like an adversary and slain all that were pleasant to the eye. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his wrath like fire. Now, notice those three likes in that verse. <clears throat> those are three similes or likeness words. The likeness of that imagery of similitude portrays God as comparable to the enemy, analogous to the adversary. Notice, with his bow in his right hand. His bow in his right hand. For that's an example of what is A and what is more than A, B pattern. Now, some of you don't know what I'm talking about. But Hebrew poetry sometimes follows this pattern or this style or this symmetry of what is A and then what is more than A is B. Now, you see it in this verse. You see it very clearly in this verse. So what is A? He has bent his bow like an enemy. That's the A-line. And what is more than the A-line is he has set his right hand like an adversary. That's the B-line. <clears throat> so what, what has he set his right hand to? To the, go ahead, Marvin. What's the text say? 
No, what's the, is that what the first line of your verse your version says? No. What does the first line say? He bent his bow. He bent his bow. So what does he set his hand to? The bow. The bow, exactly. Okay, so what is A, namely the bow, and what is more than A, his right hand in B? Or in reverse order, what is B or what is A, what he set his right hand to, what he set his right hand to the bow? So what's happening is the two lines are explaining one another. They're symmetrical. They're parallel. So if you're reading the Psalms, if you're reading Hebrew poetry, if you're reading the book of Proverbs, and you're having trouble understanding the meaning of the whole verse, look for this pattern. Look for one line of the verse being the A line, and then the second line after it being the B line, and see if that helps you understand what the A line is saying. Here, this is an expansion. The B line is an expansion on the A line. <clears throat> we find out that in his right hand is the bow. Okay, well, we get the image of a bow, but we get more than the image of a bow in the second line. It's a bow in his right hand, okay? So, actually, the B line has added. It has given an additional aspect of the image or of the truth that is being revealed there. So, in the old days, they used to say that the Hebrew, Hebrew poetry, particularly in Psalter, is strictly synonymous parallelism. That is... Each line is saying the same thing. No, they're not. They're parallel. That is true. They're synonymous. That is true. But they're not exactly synonymous. You see, a bow is not exactly the same thing as the right hand, is it? A bow is something you hold in your right hand. But they're not exactly the same. They're not exactly synonymous. Get it? So, we need to realize that the Hebrew lines are expanding, amplifying, adding, enriching, giving you more information and detail, drawing you more deeply into what's being said. For instance, in Psalm 51, a broken heart God will not despise. A broken and a contrite heart God will not despise. You see, the second line, the second word is expanding on the first word. It's enriching it. It's giving you the full dimension of a repentant, repentant, penitent, broken and contrite heart. All right, so here we, we see this pattern, and you can see it also in other places in Lamentations. I draw it out here because of this use of these similes here. <clears throat> All right, so he, he, he has a bow in his right hand, like an adversary, like an enemy. He has it in his right hand, like an adversary. There are two of the three similes, and he pours out his wrath like an enemy. Or like fire, I'm sorry. <clears throat> Jeremiah is not charging God with a direct or immediate cause of this slaughter. There's no doubt that there was slaughter in Jerusalem when the Babylonians brought their swords through the walls. But Jeremiah is not charging God with the direct or immediate cause of that catastrophe. The similes, the similes present the Lord as like the cause of this death. 
like the cause, makes God the permitter of this evil, but not the author of it. Like makes God the permitter, but not the author of the evil. The author of the evil in 586 B.C. is the evil Babylonian heart. The evil Babylonian hordes. God permits that evil of Babylon for the sake of his own sovereign purpose. To bring judgment on a sinful and disobedient nation. The enemy adversary here is God's tool. Babylon is God's tool in his permissive decree to allow Babylon to harvest the fruits of Judah's rebellion against their Lord and sovereign God. The threefold similes then in verse 4 underscore God's permissive will at the root of this pathos. It is blasphemous to say that God is the author of evil. It is blasphemous to say that God is the agent author of evil. It is not blasphemous to say that God permits evil, allows it, but is not the active agent producing it. The right hand of God here has been withdrawn in verse 3, but in verse 4 it returns as a hand that strings and notches the deadly bow. All that are pleasant to the eye in this verse are the citizens of Judah and Jerusalem, killed in the tent, as the verse says, or living space or habitation of the daughter of Zion. For a parallel of this use of tent for a dwelling place, Notice Jeremiah 4, verse 20, and Jeremiah 10, verse 20. In fact, Jeremiah 10, 17 to 25, contains a number of parallel words to the verses, to the words in verses 3 and 4 of Lamentations 2, once again building or supporting this case that Jeremiah is the author of both books. The fire imagery concatenates verse 4 with verse 3 even as the enemy similitude concatenates verse 4 with verse 5. The unfolding narrative is tightly woven, crocheted, hooked together from one verse to another, drawing us further along in the seamless description of God's judgment on Jerusalem. Verse 5. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has destroyed its strongholds and multiplied in the daughter of Judah, mourning and moaning. Now, this verse contains duplicate words twice over. The first set of duplicates describes God swallowing up Israel, as well as all its palaces. The doublet swallowed up in the New American Standard. The second pair occurs in the last two words of the verse. Here, the doublet is assonantial. Assonantial in the original Hebrew. That is, it demonstrates reiterated assonance. Okay, now we've had that word before, and some of you may not be familiar with it because you're new. 
assonance. What is assonance? Anyone? Scott? Two vowels are similar. Or the sound is the same. Okay, in this case, the last two words of verse 5 are Hebrew, Hebrew assonantial terms. Let me say them for you and you'll be able to hear the similarity of sound. Ta'aniya, wa'aniya. Ta'aniya, wa'aniya. They're the same sound. And so <clears throat> that repetition or that similarity of sound is difficult to translate exactly in English. <clears throat> the New American Standard has translated those last two words, mourning and moaning, in order to try to indicate the slight difference in the initial vowels. <clears throat> but the poet here is actually duplicating the words <clears throat> which have the same roots except for their prefixes. He's actually duplicating these words with the same sound in order to underscore the mourning of the nation. The nation of Israel, Judah. Now notice that duplication in this verse. Israel, Judah. <clears throat> the, the nation Israel, Judah is mourning exceedingly. It is mourning and then mourning again. Ta'aniyah, wa'aniyah. He doubles it in order to reduplicate the depth of the pathos of the mourning. Twice over, or mourning to a great and unusual degree. That's what the use of this assonantial uh, uh, phrase or assonantial words is intended to convey. Now, there's another place, place in the Bible. You might want to make a note of it. There's another place in the prophets where this combination of Hebrew words that is used here at the end of Lamentations 2.5 is, is also found. And it is in Isaiah 29, verse 2. You'll find that very same repetition in the original Hebrew. Now, I mentioned the two national names, Israel, Judah. I want to comment on their occurrence here. The emphasis here is on the territorial, the territory of Israel, the territory of Judah. The emphasis here is upon the national, the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah. Of course, the nation of Israel doesn't exist anymore because it was destroyed over 140 years before by the Assyrians. But notice that in verse 4, <clears throat> the emphasis there in the previous verse was on the metropolitan. The emphasis was on the urban. It was on the city of Zion. The comprehensive use of the geographical terms. City in the nation, nation and its capital city. That emphasis upon the geographical terms details the holistic nature of the fall of this civilization. Nation and city. Nation and city, capital city, collapse together. It is the end of Jerusalem. It is the end of Judah, Israel, and vice versa. For Israel here is not so much a reference to the nation of the northern kingdom, which was destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 with its capital in Samaria. But Israel here is a reference to the patriarchal source of Judah. The emphasis still lies upon this holistic collapse of this 
culture. The nation, the geographical territory, the whole region, its cities, namely its capital city, all of this has been destroyed. 586 was in many ways a final judgment upon the nation of Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 6, And he, the Lord, has violently violently treated his tabernacle like a garden booth. He has destroyed his appointed meeting place. The Lord has caused to be forgotten the appointed feast and Sabbath in Zion. And he has despised king and priest in the indignation of his anger. The desecration of the temple. This is a description of the desecration of the temple by the Babylonians, noted previously in chapter 1, verse 10. But here, it is described on the basis of God's own permissive will. God destroying booth or tabernacle and thus putting an end to Sabbath and calendar festivals. All the annual festivals of the Old Testament Jewish year are canceled, including the weekly gathering. No temple, no place for Sabbath or festival observance. Especially no place for intercession or mediation with the disappearance of the temple and the priesthood. The use of booth here for the temple of Solomon not only brings the feast of booths or the feast of tabernacles into view, it also suggests the impermanence of the temple administration. Booth or tabernacle suggests a temporary dwelling or the temporary nature of the feasts, or the temporary nature of the rituals of the temple administration. One commentator writes, God has dismantled the temple as if it were a temporary booth. The Old Testament temple was temporary, never eternal. It was a house made of stones, not a building eternal in the heavens. To absolutize the temple of the Old Testament as an enduring or permanent or eternal necessity is to insult the true temple of God. To absolutize the temple of the Old Testament as an eternal or permanent necessity is to insult the true temple of God. What did the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, say? Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. John 2:19 Jesus Christ is the eternal temple. He is the eternal priest. He is the permanent indestructible mediator between God and man for he embodies God and man as theanthropos. That's a Greek combination God man, theanthropos. The Old Testament temple was symbol The Son of God is the reality of that temple. Having the risen Lord Jesus Christ, we have the only temple we will ever need. No building of brick and stone in an earthly place, let alone Jerusalem. No earthly building could equal the surpassing excellence and everlasting quality of the Son of God, 
who is the very tabernacle of God in the midst of flesh. John 1.14. That's what he says. After the resurrection of Jesus, no temple on earth will ever do. It will never do. Because Jesus ministers before the face of our Father in heaven and in the Spirit, he carries us there with his risen person and work. There is no temple in that city. He is the temple. Now, there are interfaces between the language and imagery of this verse and portions of the book of Jeremiah. Even as we've indicated, there are lots of correspondences between the prophecy of Jeremiah and this chapter of Lamentations. God opposes, the New American Standard translates it despised or spurns king and priest in his anger. King and priest are those who spurned or despised Jeremiah. You remember how Jehoiakim burned his scroll in the fire. You remember how he was arrested and put in stocks. You remember how they plotted to kill Jeremiah. You remember how they cast him into a cistern and he almost died from suffocation. You remember how Jeremiah was a marked man. In Jeremiah 1, verses 17 to 19, the prophet writes that kings and priests of Judah fight against him. The kings fought against the prophet of God. The priests of the temple fought against the prophet of God. Their anger directed at the servant of the Lord. According to Lamentations 2.6, God will direct his anger against them in turn. The false prophets of Jerusalem are brought into this paradigm in verse 9. Verse 6, rather, or in verse 9 of Lamentations 2, Jeremiah 14, 13 to 22, and Jeremiah 23, 16 to 17 use this word spurn or despise to express God's rejection of the false prophets who despised or spurned the word of God through the true prophet Jeremiah. There is a mutual interface between the language of this verse and the language of Jeremiah's own existential experience. He was spurned. He was despised. Now God writes the balances according to his justice. Here is the deconstruction of all reality in 586 B.C. The end of kings, kingdom, monarchy, priests, temple, propitiatory, the end of a nation, people, land, the end of city, capital, Fortress, all has come to a fiery end, as it were, the end of that world. The end of that world that was then. 586 B.C. A sub-eschatological event with permanent eschatological implications. Briefly on verse 7. The Lord has rejected his altar. He has abandoned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They have made a noise in the house of the Lord as in the day of an appointed feast. This, of course, is a temple setting because of the phrase, the house of the Lord, that is here. The concatenated appointed feast here, which is the final Hebrew word in the verse, ties this setting 
or location to that of verse 6. It's the same on-site location. The altar, sanctuary, house of the Lord vocabulary, makes this temple identification certain. Verse 7 is talking about the temple as verse 6 is talking about the temple. Verse 7 is concatenated or hooked to verse 6 in an expansion of detail about the ruined Solomonic temple. But notice the black irony here in verse 7. This appointed feast is not the observance of Sabbath or the Feast of Tabernacles, celebrations of reverent joy and exuberant harvest climax, which are probably alluded to in verse 6. No, the noise of this appointed feast day is the shouts of the Babylonian triumph and the shrieks of those slain in the temple precincts. The enemy celebrates in the temple an appointed festival of destruction and death, a dark Sabbath indeed. What feasts Judah has forgotten and spurned are displaced and replaced by feasts of her enemies. God's altar is dismantled, rejected, even as Judah had rejected the sacrifices of the Lord at that altar, substituting pagan offerings in the temple of God. So now they have the full fruit of their pagan sacrifices. Offering to the cult of death and hell, they have reaped what they have sown, death and hell, and no altar of intercession to avail. No intercession availeth. How desperately we need the Lord Jesus Christ and his intercession to deliver us from death and hell and all our rebellious rejections of his holy will. Bring pagan rites and customs into the church and the church will become a synagogue of Satan fit only for rejection, destruction, and dark Intrigue. Go ahead. Do to the church what the Old Testament Jews did to the temple. Go ahead and do it. And you are inviting the destruction of the church of God. Any questions or comments? <clears throat> That's as far as we'll go this evening. Yes, Marvin. I'm just trying to understand uh, how this plays out in terms of their return from captivity. As you've said, this is the end of Israel, it's the end of the tabernacles. Yet later on, we have a reconstruction of the temple. We have a return of the Israel people to that area. Uh, was that a waste of their time? No, it, it's a fulfillment of the promise that a remnant would return, but that temple did not have the glory of the Solomonic temple, as they all confessed. And that temple was ultimately expanded under Herod the Great and destroyed in 70 A.D. and never rebuilt. So what we have here is an anticipation of what will be a final demolition in 70 A.D. That's correct. That is correct. 
<clears throat> but it highlights the fact that the temple was never to be the permanent place of intercession or mediation on, for the people of God. It was, all, it, it was always to draw their eyes to the heavenly mediator. Is that a reconstruction or is that Israel being reborn? Not in my opinion. The highest rate of atheism per capita in the world is in Israel. There are more atheists per capita in Israel than in any other country in the world. That includes the Soviet Union, although the United States may be pressing hard. But nonetheless... Nonetheless, Israel, as it exists as a secular state, is a secular state. It's not a religious state. It's It's a Babylon state. That is correct. That doesn't mean it doesn't have a right to exist. It doesn't mean it may not be in our interest, according to our foreign policy, to protect and defend it and to have its political interest in our heart or in our foreign policy. But, in other words, it doesn't have a place in the plan of God except as a secular state. Okay, for now. That's fine. Uh, yeah, this, this, this is my opinion uh, about what I think the scriptures are doing, particularly the Gospel of John, the displacement of Israel as an entity, and the replacement of that Jewish fleshly Israel with the Israel according the Israel of God, according to the Spirit. I think that's also what Paul is doing in Galatians 3. That, that, that's, that's my opinion, but I know it's hotly contested. Well, I appreciate your opinion. It's an area that I keep trying to bring some clarity to for my own sake. Very good. And it's just a constant work. Good. Keep working at it. Come back. I'll help you. Yes, come. Just a suggestion to help reinforce that point. Israel, prior to Christ's death and resurrection, positively in its return, could be a foreshadowing of Christ's resurrection. But now that Christ has been raised from the dead, The the, the real fullness displaces the shadows. That's the point. Christ is the real fullness. So having Christ, we're content. Some details, we'll keep working at it. Okay. When you're in doubt, hang on to Jesus. When you're not sure, hang on to Jesus. Very good. You know, and, and just no matter what it is, hang on to Jesus. <laughs> we have no one else to go. Thank you.